1: My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here at Alpine Vineyards in Alpine, Oregon, just outside Monroe. It is November 5th, 2015. We're here with Dan and Christine Jepson. And our first question to you, as our first question is for everyone, is why wine? To
0: me or to Dan? I'll let you answer that one. <laughs> you have the answer to that one. Well, that's a
2: long story. <laughs> um, and I guess the question is, where do we begin? Um, I I think that um, In a uh, nutshell, uh, I um, graduated from college with a degree in chemistry in 1966, and traveled to Europe uh, and fell in love with small, uh, the very small family operations. And on my way to medical school in San Francisco, I stopped to see my dad's brother, my uncle Chuck, in uh, Connecticut, and he was. uh, he was shipping grapes from California to Connecticut in refrigerated boxcars and making wine in his backyard as a home winemaker, which was legal, with his Italian friends. And um, I was 21 at the time and I tasted what he uh, had been producing and I said, Boy, this is pretty good, Chuck. Teach me what you know. So he did, and as a freshman medical student in San Francisco, I uh, made my first wine uh, the fall of nineteen sixty six with grapes that i uh... uh, uh w- obtained from the Hecker Pass area in Gilroy, uh, south of San Francisco um, and every uh, year throughout medical school uh, I made uh, more wine and I quickly learned that if you want to make good wine you need to probably grow your own grapes but if you don't grow your own grapes you need to um, need to uh, control the uh, how the grapes in the vineyard are taken care of. Um, so after Christine and I finished uh, a couple of years in the Peace Corps from 72 to 74, we uh, uh, decided that uh, in addition to doing our, our medical work that we would try to find land to uh, uh, Plant as a vineyard, and if the vineyard uh, looked like it was going to work, then we would uh, start a winery. So, that in a nutshell is how we got our start.
1: Christine, you were on board for this? Yes, I sure was. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you were then doing, you, you were not full time vineyard at that point, you were also doing medical work uh, as well once you, after you started looking for this place?
0: Correct. We both had full careers. I'm a nurse, Dan's a physician. We did that and this simultaneously.
1: So tell us about finding this property that we're on now.
2: We actually uh, had uh, some contacts uh, through the Peace Corps. Uh, A man by the name of Bob Jacobs uh, lived in Monroe. He was an architecture student and had constructed a dome in Monroe on Archer Tract. And uh, we uh, spent uh, a few nights with uh, he and his uh, friend and... uh, he said uh, after we described what we were looking for in terms of uh, vineyard land, uh, and I, we had both done a lot of research uh, about the parameters uh, that we were looking for, which was land on a south-facing slope between 500 and 1,000 feet in the South Willamette Valley. Uh, those were important criteria for me, and if you're interested, we can get into why we chose the South Willamette Valley over the North Willamette Valley. Um, but uh, uh, he said, I have just the property for you. And uh, he brought us up here because this place uh, was part of a 390 acre ranch that had just gone on the market. And uh, so in the September of 74, we made an offer on uh, uh, this exact, exact uh, uh, parcel that we're uh, located on. But it took us a year before we were able to actually negotiate a sale, and we ended up purchasing, in September of 75, a 90-acre parcel out of that 390-acre ranch.
1: Okay, so you piqued my interest. Why the South Willamette Valley? Um, Well, uh, we
2: actually uh, had, uh, as I mentioned, come to uh, Oregon in 1974, Uh, with the idea of uh, uh, finding work as well as uh, finding vineyard property. Uh, Christine's uh, roommate from uh, nursing school uh, was Kathy Blosser and her brother is Bill Blosser and we actually spent time with uh, uh, the Blossers uh, at their operation and um, we got to know Dickie Rath uh, as well and met with uh, uh, Chuck Corey uh, and uh, David Lett and David Adelsheim and the Ponzi's. And um, uh, I asked everyone, well, why why are you located up here when it appears to be a little drier in the South Willamette Valley? And they said, well, marketing was the primary reason. (laughs) And um, I said, yeah, but Pinot Noir is a very fragile grape. It's got a very fragile skin. And if you get rain uh, during harvest, then you're going to have lots of problems and they admitted to that but thought that the marketing advantage to being in the Portland area uh, trumped uh, my argument but I think uh, our uh, decision to settle down here uh, has actually uh, I think proven to be uh, correct um, in that we tend to not have uh, the rains in the early fall rains tend to be delayed down here Anyone who looks at a weather map uh, uh, this time of year will often see storms that brush uh, uh, coming in from the north. Seattle, uh, Portland, but not making it, and and the Dundee area, but not making it down to Mm -hmm. the South Willamette Valley. And that's very critical in years where the grapes uh, ripen uh, uh, late. And we tend to not only uh, avoid the uh, early fall rains, but we also tend to ripen slightly ahead of the North Valley.
1: S- is there anything else about the terroir or the soil climate here that's, that's noticeably different than other parts of the Ouhamette Valley?
2: Well, I think we're very very similar. We actually do have jury soil on this site, which is the dominant soil in Dundee. So, uh, I think it is slightly warmer here also. I think our degree days tend to be a little bit a- ahead Uh, Again, in years uh, like the last two years, it doesn't matter because it's been so hot. Mm -hmm. But in those uh, marginal years, for example, 1984, uh, uh, that was uh, 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 in the er early uh, years of the industry. um, On um, October 15th, uh, our Pinot Noir was sitting at 21 and a half, and the Pinot Noir at the North Valley was at 19 and a half. Very few producers made pinot, red red Pinot Noir in 1984 uh, out of 19 and a half bricks uh, Pinot Noir, and they made uh, those wines into blush wines. Mm. Uh, we saw uh, every one in the industry saw a storm which was to dump about six inches of rain over a week period beginning around October 15th. We got half of our grapes picked. Um, uh, before that storm hit and made a red wine, which won a medal in a competition uh, in Washington. And uh, we made the other half into our first blush wine, which <laughs> won a gold medal at the Oregon State Fair. <laughs> but in any case, um, uh, so uh, I, I think that's prime. those are the primary differences.
1: So you get your land in the mid-70s. You're both working full-time at this point. How did you go about starting the vineyard and then eventually the winery? How did how did that come about?
0: Well, I was working part time because okay. we had two young children, or we're in the process of having two young children. And Dan had a really nice schedule in medicine. He worked a forty eight hour shift on the weekends. Huh. So he had time during the week and we did most of it by ourselves, enlisted a lot of friends, a lot of family, <laughs> a little bit at a time.
2: A lot of sweat, sweat equity. Right. <laughs> we scrounged for uh, our original grape steaks were penny a piece. Be- uh, used bean poles that we <laughs> that we treated so that they, you know, would last for a few years. And, and
1: how did you split up the labor then, with a young family and jobs and a vineyard to build? How was how did you did you consciously divvy up the efforts, or did it just sort of naturally happen?
0: Um. Inter- i don 't know I think it more naturally happened, <laughs> probably, and I was fairly in, I was more involved i 've always done all the accounting for the business been involved in the, on the marketing side, especially when we had we had two tasting rooms at one point. Dan definitely does more of the sweat equity out in the vineyard. <laughs> I do my share during harvest, but i 'm a little bit lazier in the middle of winter.
2: Oh, you're being too generous. In the early, back in the early years, you were out there. I did a lot early <laughs> on. Yeah, had, we both had children <laughs> on our back uh, planting vines and uh, doing work. So no, you, you did, you did a lot. As you continue with the bookends of the business. <laughs> um,
1: so, did you ever? Was there ever a time in the, especially in the early years, where you? thought you had made a mistake, thought you were, thought this was too much, thought it was the wrong industry to go into, or were you always pretty happy with the decision?
0: Well I was always thankful that we weren't totally dependent on farming for our livelihoods and knowing that we were enjoying doing this and wanted to do it but had a a fallback option too. So I don't think we ever really considered not doing it or getting out of it once we got started.
2: Actually, I think uh, that uh, in the early years, it was just uh, self-reinforcing. Every year, the wines got better, the grapes matured. Uh, We planted our first 10 acres in the the spring of 76. Uh, Then, as I mentioned earlier, we built our home and winery uh, in 77, but didn't complete it until 78. So we moved out here in the spring of 78 and uh, then planted another 10 acres between 78 and uh, 82, and then another 6 acres in 1990. Uh, It was always, uh, it was an exciting uh, challenge. Uh, We first planted, uh, even though we were betting that Pinot Noir was what was going to do well here, this was really uh, somewhat virgin territory. When we started there were only a handful of wineries in Oregon, Uh, uh, But as you know now, there are several hundred, Um, and uh, so I planted, just because uh, I I grew up actually in California and um, my family liked uh, Cabernet and Chardonnay, we planted a significant amount of Chardonnay and Cabernet as well as the Pinot Noir, uh, in addition to white Riesling, because we felt that uh, Riesling was going to be a good cash flow wine, which it was, and we actually had a lot of success with our Riesling. Uh, We actually planted Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Chenin Blanc, uh, Pinot Blanc, Zinfandel. Uh, All those have been grafted over to Pinot Noir, as has all the Riesling, uh, simply because at this point uh, the land is much more valuable, planted in in Pinot Noir. So it was not only uh, just a fun challenge for us to see what would work here. Uh, but as you've seen, this is just physically a, an incredibly beautiful setting, and we, we just love living here. So you meet up every day.
1: <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so you mentioned that it was Cabernet. Cabernet you you said it was we were one of the few places that grew it at the Wampanoag. Is that correct? Cabernet. Yes. Uh-huh, so actually, how how did you make it work down here?
2: Well, um, I think what one has to understand uh, is that. Um, there are cool uh, climates that grow Cabernet throughout the world. Uh, of particular note is the Loire Valley in France, which is quite a bit north of Bordeaux. And uh, there are towns in the Loire Valley that excel at cool climate uh, Cabernets, in particular Chinon and Bourgueil. And um, as I mentioned to uh, you, Rich, earlier, and Rachel, um, uh matt kramer is a real fan of our cabernets and he's likened them to the wines of chinon and Bergeel. Um so one just has to accept that uh cabernet does not have to be a huge blockbuster wine it can be a very delicious uh, lighter style so that's i think how we've made that work
1: so you uh, had found your property here and you would started uh, and you're the first and for a long time only winery in Benton County, and there's, you have no real close winery neighbors. So how did you, and you, you mentioned a lot of the early pioneers that you had met. How did you go about uh, gaining the knowledge uh, to, to, to plant grapes and to make everything flourish?
2: Well, fortunately, in the early years, uh, it, the, the wine industry was a very collegial uh, group. Uh, everybody shared uh, their knowledge, and so, um, I did a lot of reading, um, and I uh, read everything I could, and I also talked to everybody that I could, and we, uh, we worked with the, uh, w- we were uh, members of the Oregon Wine Growers Association from its inception, uh, and for uh, decades actually.
1: Um, How often were you able to, with no Close neighbors, how often did you see, was it monthly that you saw other winemakers? Was it more often than that?
0: At least monthly. At least monthly. Right. We had regular OWA meetings and we socialized. And particularly as the industry just started to develop in this area, people would get together regularly too.
1: Um, excuse me. So... How has Alpine evolved over the years for you uh, in terms of from a very small vineyard to a winery and now back to just a vineyard? How has the evolution happened?
2: Okay, well uh, back in the uh, decade of the 80s uh, we were producing three to four thousand cases of wine per year and uh, we were able to market uh, all of that wine uh, mostly in Oregon, a little bit in Washington, a little bit in California. We also sold a little bit in Japan through Henny Hinsdale um, and in England uh, based on our success with our early Chardonnays. Uh, Our 1983 Chardonnay was a unanimous goal at the Enological Society and uh, one of the judges uh, was a uh, wine merchant from London and he wanted uh, a pallet of that wine for his London shop. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, uh, to answer your question more directly, it was uh, very uh, easy for us to sell our our wine from our tasting room here. And we also had a tasting room at the Wood Gallery in Newport uh, for, oh, what was that, four or five years?
0: I'd have to look it up. (laughs) It's (laughs) been uh, a while. Yes. um,
2: But it became clear in the early 90s that um, in order to uh, With the increased number of wineries in the state of Oregon, we were going to have to uh, increasingly go out of state to sell our wine and based on our uh, involvement with our two daughters and both of our professions, uh, full-time jobs basically, we uh, we were going to have to hire somebody to do marketing to and to afford that person we would need to expand Mm -hmm. and we thought well, you know what, we're pretty happy at the level we are so we thought well rather than expanding and having to go out of state, let's uh, start selling grapes. So oh, I think 92 was the first year we sold a few grapes and then increasingly we sold a few more each year. And then by 97, uh, um, we sold I think all of our grapes except for uh, half ton or a ton. Uh, every now and then I would make the entire Cabernet crop uh, and bottle that and still sell that through our distributor, which at that time was Lemma Wine Company in Portland. Um, And um, so uh, for the past uh, almost, well, roughly a decade and a half anyway, we've been uh, pretty much exclusively a vineyard. But it's been very uh, enjoyable to watch the industry grow, um, especially uh, with uh, the appreciation that the rest of the world has uh, 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 recognized uh, the Oregon uh, Pinot Noirs.
1: How, how did you go about, when you made that decision, how did you go about, was it easy to find buyers for your grapes, did it happen pretty naturally that way? Oh yeah. Yeah?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's very, very
2: easy. Good. Yeah, and in particular, although we've sold to uh, local wineries, uh, we've sold to uh, broadly, we've sold to King Estate, we've sold to Hinman, um, it's the wineries at the North Valley that have really valued our grapes, because, especially in the marginal years, uh, mm-hmm. uh, because In years where things don't get quite as ripe as they'd like them, um, before the rains come, they would always have a secure source of fruit from us. Makes sense.
1: Um, Sorry, to the last question I was going to ask there. Um, When did you, when you were working on marketing in the early years, did you feel that you were? how were you able to compete with the kind of Portland area, the Dundee Hills? Did you feel competitive? Did you feel like you were part of the same group as theirs or were you kind of working on your own, being so far away?
2: Well, it was pretty Hmm. easy, actually, because uh, uh, we were uh, uh, the first winery in uh, recent history, anyway, uh, in uh, Benton County. So actually our first label uh, had Benton County as the appellation, and then after that we said, well, now let's, let's use Willamette Valley because that makes more sense in terms of um, overall marketing strategy. But, uh, <clears throat> uh, so we had, uh, uh, so Corvallis was a very large market for us, uh, because we were in the only winery uh, existing winery in uh, Benton County at the time. Uh, and then Eugene was also a very good mm-hmm. secondary market, uh, in terms of the Portland market, um, we, uh, I, th- I think most wineries would agree that the reason one enters competitions is so that you have a marketing uh, tool and we were uh, winning medals right out of the gate and that gave us a, a foot in the door in the uh, Portland market. Um, <clears throat> we actually self-distributed for the first uh, couple of years uh, and then we decided, well, we need to be able to sell wine in Portland. So Mike McMiniman, a lot of people don't know this, but Mike, uh, uh, before he started his uh, restaurant uh, business, was a wine, beer and wine distributor. Huh. And he actually approached us right here and uh, asked if he could be our distributor. And so we went with him for a couple of years and, and then we uh, switched uh, a couple of years later uh, to Henny Hinsdale out of Salem and he had a very strong presence. In Portland we were with them for many many years and then we uh, w- uh, switched uh, a few years later uh, to L- the Lema wine company've
1: we've, we've heard a lot from people who love to make wine that the selling of it is the worst part of the experience <laughs> was that true for you
0: well it's the hardest, part, the hardest part because you have to have a constant presence out there you might do tastings with wait staff and get known in a restaurant but there's constant turnover, and so you have to keep going back on a very regular basis. So I would say marketing probably was the most challenging part for us, especially with other jobs. If we had been able to devote full-time to marketing, it would have been a little bit easier.
2: Yes, I, I would second that, and uh, I would say that when, I, when we did our initial research, I knew uh, almost to the penny what it was going to cost to plant this vineyard. I knew what it was going to cost to make the wine, I had no idea what it was going to cost to sell the wine. And I'm sure you've heard that from other people in, in our business. But, uh, so yeah, that, that was a pretty uh, sharp learning curve on that.
1: So how did you go about developing that strategy then? How did you, how did you figure out how to sell it the, mo- at the most efficient way? By doing, (laughs) just by doing, (laughs) yeah,
0: by doing it, knocking Um, on a lot of doors, yeah, getting in, identifying key restaurants and wine shops, and getting into those places. Obviously, using any awards that the wines had won as a nice marketing tool,
2: and also learning that uh, uh, we were going to have to hire somebody who was really knowledgeable in wine if we were going to make the expansion that we thought was necessary. we, we learned pretty quickly that there's, uh, uh, there's no uh, alternative to expertise. <laughs> and although we have expertise, we have limited time, so. Sure.
1: Are there any, as you, you talked about the competitions and, and winning medals, are there any um, awards you're particularly proud of or any wines you're particularly proud of?
0: You go with that one. <laughs> well, what, uh,
2: I actually, I'm proud of every wine we've ever made. We've only made estate bottled wines. A lot of people don't know what estate bottle means, but you have to uh, grow the grapes. The winery has to grow the grapes on, wine they, uh, on, on land they uh, own or lease and therefore control within five miles of where the processing facility is. So we've only done estate bottled wines throughout our entire history. <coughs> and. Um, uh, uh, to answer your question about wines, we're really proud of. Uh, we, in terms of medals, uh, we won uh, the Best of Show for our 1982 white Riesling at the um, Tri Cities uh, Wine Competition in Pasco. Uh, our 1983 uh, Chardonnay uh, was the only wine to win a unanimous gold at the Enological Society in 1984, or I think it was 84 or 85, wow. but. Uh, in any case, uh, that wine uh, did very well, and that was the wine that the uh, uh, wine buyer from England um, uh, took back uh, to his wine uh, shop. And um, uh, then our 1983 Pinot Noir did very well in the Burgundy Challenge, uh, tied for third in the uh, second tasting done in 1985 um, in, in a blind blind tasting. So. But we've won gold medals on uh, multiple uh, Pinot Noirs. Uh, our let's say 82 Pinot Noir State Fair, 86 Pinot Noir International Wine Review, 1990 Pinot Noir Theological Society. Uh, and these are all listed in the. Uh, I, I gave you a list of all the uh, excellent, all the all, all the medals that we've won. So. Uh,
1: so you you've been in the industry for much of its, you came in when it was very young, it was very small, so you've seen a lot of the milestones of Oregon wine. Are there particular moments that stand out to you in terms of Oregon wine entering into the mainstream or entering into the consciousness, or are there particular moments that stand out to you for the industry as a whole? Or even for your own, for yourselves, for Alpine and specifically also?
0: Well, probably the Burgundy Challenge that you were talking about earlier.
2: Although it took the world uh, quite a while to catch up with that, it wasn't until uh, I would say the early '90s, uh, early to mid '90s, that we really turned the corner and that Oregon, uh, uh, the world, started to appreciate the quality of the wines coming out of Oregon. I think, uh, for example, uh, the uh, when the Drewan family uh, family purchased land uh, up in Dundee, that was a turning point. Um, Steve Girard of uh, Benton Lane Winery had a um, 15,000 case uh, Cabernet uh, winery in uh, the Napa Valley. And he came up here in 1984 and had, he and his wife, uh, Carol, had a lunch with us and he asked me, Dan, why are you down here at this end of the valley? Uh, and I explained the reasons that I've already mm-hmm. explained to you. And he said, well, you know, he'd done this similar evaluation and he agreed with me. <laughs> and uh, that's why he purchased uh, a 2,000 acre a uh, piece of property on Sunny Mountain, which is just uh, five miles away, the ro- uh, f- uh, crow flies right over the hill there to our southeast, uh, and planted a 100-acre vineyard, and uh, he's done quite well.
1: So as the, as the area filled in, as Benton County became more, did, did you become, feel like you were kind of the elder statesman of the area? Did a lot of people come to you for <laughs> advice, or for grapes, or for anything else?
2: Well, not only advice, but for cuttings. So yes, a lot of, um, a lot of the vineyards in the South Walamite Valley uh, have, have come from our place.
1: Um. So let's go back a little ways. We're going to jump back in history a little bit here. How did you two first meet?
0: We both went to UC Medical Center in San Francisco. Dan was in medical school and I was in nursing school.
1: And then you went into the Peace Corps together.
0: We did. And after we were married, we were in West Africa. We were in what was then Zaire for three months. Dan was a Peace Corps doctor, I was a Peace Corps nurse, and then we were in West Africa and covered, lived in Senegal, covered Mali, Mauritania, um, Gambia, and Senegal.
1: And so being married and being in the same business together has to be, Somewhat difficult at times. We we know that <laughs> not a lot of relationships have survived the wine industry in the area. So how did you two make it work?
0: Well, we have a pretty good division of labor, and um, I think we've we figured out over the years. You know, we each have our own areas of expertise, and um, I don't know, it's worked fine. Well, you know, we have oh, ninety-eight yeah. for property. <laughs> <laughs> and we each have our own space. No,
2: <laughs> no I think
1: uh, division
2: of labor yeah. is is the secret and and a division of responsibility.
1: So are there any crossovers from working in the medical industry and working in wine, or is there anything that you find, any similarities you find, any crossovers between the two?
0: Hmm. I don't know, there are yeah. a lot of people in, in the medical field that are also in the wine industry. I'm not sure what, what the correlation is. We were lucky in terms of our careers to have some flexibility in our schedules so we could do the wine industry at the same time?
2: Well, I think attention to detail. Um, I think uh, uh, even though uh, winemaking is fairly basic biochemistry, um, hygiene, cleanliness is really important <laughs> in the winery. And if you don't uh, appreciate those, then you're going to make some pretty uh, uh, grave mistakes in your winemaking. Um, and so I think that's probably the, uh, the, the the greatest similarity is that you have to really be be attentive to uh, every step in the process, um, and not just in the winery, but also in growing the grapes in terms of uh, making sure that your your grapes are clean when they come into the winery, clean from the standpoint of not having botrytis or powdery mildew, which uh, powdery mildew uh, ruins your wine, and botrytis ruins a lot of wine. So.
1: <clears throat> um when you were as you were growing did you at you did you ever um was there ever help brought in did you were you do, doing most of the labor and bringing in help for harvest or was did you have full-time people helping
0: we've had help year-round for many many years part-time but several different people and then we bring in a lot of local high school students during the <laughs> summer and then we bring in contract labor for Particularly for harvest, but sometimes for other pulling brush or something major. We'll bring in a crew for a few days. And we had some marketing help sure. many years ago too.
2: And of course when we had our tasting rooms we had uh, help uh, because we were open virtually uh, every day from May 1st to October 31st and then on holidays.
0: And at the coast we were open year-round.
2: Year-round daily actually, Yeah, except for a couple of days, Christmas. And, but. Um, yeah, uh, we've transitioned though into having uh, uh, now that I'm retired from medicine uh, to just having uh, uh, two uh, half-time people most of the year. But there are some quiet periods. For example, now nobody's working except for me out there. And um, uh, but uh, with those two people half-time and they're both local, uh, it's worked very well for us.
1: So, how much of your daily time do you devote to keeping the vineyard afloat?
2: Well, uh, it, it varies by season. Right now, it doesn't take much. Uh, for example, I was out, out actually working on the non-vineyard portion of the property the last week, uh, clearing blackberries and, and scotch broom. So, um, As I said, you know, they're a big, big piece of property. That <laughs> we, we
0: <laughs> so. But during the summer, it's pretty labor-intensive. And then pruning, those are the two two big times.
2: Yeah, and uh, I did, I never answered that question. Yeah, during the uh, summer, I'm out there f- four to eight hours a day, and during pruning, I'll be out there uh, with my crew of two guys, uh, probably for five or six hours a day. And it'll take us, the three of us working together, about one month to do the actual pruning. And uh, we used to do all the brush pulling ourselves, but that, uh, that's a very tough job, and uh, uh, neither of them really enjoy it. so We bring in a contract labor crew that does it every day, and in two days they have the whole twenty six acres pulled to brush and then I can put the flail mower in the back of the tractor and chop it all up and uh, Then things are pretty quiet until uh, things start to grow again
1: <laughs> so uh, do you have any other interests outside of... Do you have time for any interests outside of wine and work and family? Do you, uh, Other things you enjoy in the area?
0: In the area? Or, or just other well, things you enjoy? There are a lot of things <laughs> we enjoy. Uh, we love to travel, so we do a fair amount of that. Our travel schedule is somewhat dependent on what's needed in the vineyard. Um, Dan's a cellist. We, I don't know. We have a social life that we enjoy.
2: We like to go to plays. We spend, spend a lot of time with our grandkids, who uh, we have
1: five, and they're all in daughters. Portland. Yeah. <coughs> so
0: we, we know i five really well.
1: <laughs> do you uh, have a uh, succession plan? Is uh, do any any family interest in the in the property?
0: Um, not at this point. Only because their careers are all they're very busy with their full-time careers and young children. So I think. They would like to, but probably realistically we don't have a family member that's at this point wanting to take over the vineyard.
2: Let's just say the succession plan is evolving. <laughs> One of our uh, sons-in-law uh, did actually work on the vineyard with us uh, for six years, uh, a day a week. And I think, uh, I think he would like to, but yes. things are evolving. so. We- we can't answer that <laughs> the question grand- with finality at this point. <laughs> the
0: grandkids are a little bit young, but maybe down the road, they love to come out here. One of them will be interested. We'll see.
1: So you'd like to keep it in the family if, if you could?
0: If we could. If there's a, an interest, yeah.
1: So looking back, what, are the, what is the most important thing you've learned in the industry? Or if you had, if you answer a different way, if you could do one thing over again, what would you do differently?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't do anything differently. Um, uh, Oh, I might. uh, When we uh, planted the vineyard, uh, uh, I used uh, the trellising system that was used then. If I were to expand, I would probably use a different trellising system. It would still be the upright vertical um, uh, trellis, uh, but I would probably use metal stakes instead of wooden uh, posts. But, you know, these are minor, minor things.
0: I think one thing I learned, I grew up in San Francisco, so I really had never had any farming experience at all. It Gave me such an appreciation for people that farm full time and how much work it really is.
2: And, and picking up on that, I, um, my dad and his brother and two sisters grew up on a farm in uh, north of Spokane. Uh, they didn't have electricity uh, until after my dad went off to college. It wasn't until the uh, uh, 40s that uh, this town of Springdale was electrified, or at least the rural part, uh, part of Springdale, Washington, was electrified. Wow. And uh, but I would spend all my summers growing up uh, working on my grandparents' farm, and uh, I fell in love with uh, that kind of life. So, um, and I'm I'm somebody who really does need to be physically active, which is why, uh, I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to do the vineyard, uh, it, is that it gave me gave me that uh, uh, opportunity to do something useful with the energy that I, I felt uh, needed to be expended. Uh, in fact, I ran cross-country in college, and one year uh, my uh, granddad was down visiting uh, our family in, in Los Altos, and uh, I, was, I went off to run at the local high school before I went back to college uh, for my, I think it was my junior year, and my granddad said, uh, Dan, why? Why are you Why are you doing this? And I said, Oh, just because you know I got to get in shape. He said, Well, you're wasting You're wasting a lot of energy. Why aren't you out here or, or building a fence or doing something useful on your parents' property?
1: <laughs>
2: so, anyway, and he's been here. He actually helped lay that brick walkway with my dad and and me and and our one of our daughters helped lay that walkway.
1: This is pretty awesome to have so many different people in your family having touched a part of this property like, as, you were, as you were creating it. That's really, that's really neat.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, family and friends. In fact, uh, that uh, brings up something that I wanted to uh, uh, mention, and we talked about it a, a little bit earlier before we started filming. And that is uh, that I uh, had a colleague at the University of Oregon uh, Health Center uh, that uh, uh, was very interested in what we were doing out here. In fact, he came out and helped us plant our first 10 acres. And at the uh, end of that time, um, uh, uh, later in that summer he said, Dan, can you help me acquire the 26 acres of land next to you? His name is Frank Baines. His family's name in Scotland was Woodhall, And uh, so I helped him negotiate the uh, uh, purchase of the uh, neighboring property. And uh, he and his wife Betty uh, planted 10 acres of vines uh, on the property with the idea that they were going to um, uh, possibly start a winery but unfortunately Betty developed uh, leukemia Mm -hmm. and passed away Uh, Mm -hmm. but before she did pass away uh, she and Frank agreed to uh, give uh, the property to Oregon State as a research station which it is currently today Um, and uh, in fact both uh, Frank and Betty are buried up up there. Mm Anyway. uh, he, uh, in addition to our family, <clears throat> he uh, helped a lot. I also need to mention our parents. Uh, they uh, um, moved up from California and lived in Eugene for uh, four or five years, uh, and were out here helping us in the early years of uh, the vineyard, both in terms of the vineyard labor, as well as they helped in the tasting room, and they went to marketing events for us, so yeah, we had, we had a lot of help.
1: That's really awesome. Uh, so the Woodhall Research Facility is it st- wine research or are, so vineyard, vineyard vineyard research and, and still being used today?
2: Uh-huh. Oh yeah, and they uh, actually Active. they actually make a wine out of the uh, the grapes that are uh, over there for wi- uh, wine trials. Uh, they <clears throat> the uh, clonal block where they brought in uh, many of the uh, 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 newer clones uh, from France. Um, the 777s, et cetera, uh, the mother block was uh, established at Woodhall 20 years ago. And uh, they've uh, since ripped that out, and now they're replacing that with a trellising trial to see actually what happens uh, with the various uh, trellises that are out there, the Scott Henry, the uh, upright like we have, uh, and the hanging uh, hanging, uh, uh, curtain. Uh, anyway, they're they're studying every uh, conceivable trellis next door. Well, that trial has just gone in. They even uh, they they do not have phylloxera. We do not have phylloxera, but they do have a rootstock trial up there uh, that has been going on for I would say a decade or so now, where they have various rootstocks and they have uh, grafted uh, certainly Pinot Noir of various clones, um, uh, Chardonnay. And uh, I think uh, I'm not, beyond that I'm not sure, but they're studying the quality of the wines that are coming out of various rootstocks with uh, the uh, European grape varietals on top of, grafted onto those rootstocks.
1: That's really cool. Um, You mentioned uh, being part of the Oregon Wine Growers Association from from the beginning, Um, I'm curious what we're always curious to hear what that was like especially as it was getting started what the uh, how it worked what the atmosphere was like what the collegiality was like how how you all worked together
0: well it was fun we yes. had
1: very social. fairly
0: social <laughs> meetings but we worked together on a lot of things i mean marketing in particular we did a lot of we focused on events that would market the region not just necessarily one winery um so we we did some flyers, some literature together, we did events together, and we shared a lot of information. It was a nice way for, especially as people were just coming in, and some of us had been here a little bit longer, to benefit from our, what we'd learned and our mistakes, too. I think any-
2: everybody wanted wanted uh, to see the industry uh, prosper and the idea was that uh, if anybody's putting bad wines out there then they needed to be aware that there were flaws in those wines and that was they, those wines were gonna hurt the industry so I think everybody was concerned about quality which was uh, really nice it wasn't that you had it brought everybody together instead of having you know uh, 30 or 40 different uh, wineries going in every direction we were all banded together and we're focusing our energy to growing the industry.
1: Are there any, uh, any personalities that stand out from those early meetings? Any particular moments in particular that that, uh, that you remember?
2: Well, let's see, from this end of the valley, Doyle Hinman was a real firecracker. Uh, he was just a <laughs> nice guy, barrel of energy, yeah. nice guy, wonderful to work with. Uh, Bill Blosser at the North Valley, uh, I would say those two were the standouts for me anyway, and, and Dick Ponzi also was was very very wonderful to work everybody was wonderful to work with but uh in terms of energy those were i think the ones that uh, i
1: recall that was a while ago
0: That was four years i ago. know <laughs> i can't remember back that far
1: did it did it feel at the time like um like it was a fairly um equal uh equal playing playing field for all of you did it feel like there were certain people trying to make decisions for the rest of you, or did you feel like you all had a pretty equal input into the future of the industry?
0: I felt like everybody had an input, everybody was valued. I felt like it was a very open process.
1: It's, just always, it's always struck us as interesting because it's so, so, many, so many big and unique personalities t- t- getting together and coming up with some of the ideas you guys came up with is, is fascinating. We're always interested in the process of how it happened. So. Um, so in your mind what does the future of Oregon wine look like
0: well I think it looks very promising Uh, I always look for Oregon wines no matter where I am traveling if I'm ordering wine with dinner
2: (laughs) well uh, um, I I have told uh, uh, many people this that I believe that in a hundred years every South South and southeast-facing slope in the Willamette Valley on the uh, west side of the Willamette Valley on the foothills of the Coast Range, not too far into the Coast Range, because if you get too far into the Coast Range, then you're going to get out of the inversion zone, which we can talk about also. But I predicted that in 100 years, instead of seeing Douglas fir planted on all these south and southeast-facing slopes, you're going to see vineyards. So I think you're going to see, uh, even with global warming, because I think global warming is happening, but I think it's going to happen very slowly. In fact, I just read uh, Greg Jones' report uh, y- yesterday, and this surprised me. But his report was that the degree, uh, the degree, the degree days for the MQA and the Rogue increased by 6% over even last year, the hottest year on record. In the Valley, it decreased 2% over last year. Which really surprised me. So hmm. what I'm, all I'm saying is that I think that this is going to continue to be a, uh, a Burgundy-like area, and uh, in terms of being able to grow wonderful Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays and Pinot Gris uh, for decades. Um, but I really do think that the industry uh, is just in its infancy. I, I think um, uh, it, the, the wine industry, I think, is, is good. It's a good industry. Uh, for the planet. I mean, these grapevines uh, produce uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, good, uh, or they, they, they consume a lot of carbon dioxide. And uh, I think it's just a, a wonderful industry if one uh, practices good farming uh, uh, techniques.
1: Do you see any potential pitfalls? Are there, are there anything that Oregon wine industry has to be careful to, to do or not to do?
2: As I mentioned, I think we have to really uh, husband the, the land well and not, uh, not over fertilize, uh, not use chemicals that are harmful. Uh, I, we started out being totally organic uh, and we made the decision that, uh, uh, that we, we, we would rather be minimalist than what we do and that has worked for us.
1: So you mentioned the inversion zone. So, tell us more about that.
2: Okay. Between, uh, the the Willamette Valley is a box canyon with the uh, coast range, which we're sitting in here on the west, and the cascade range on the east. Um, And on the very cold, uh, clear uh, nights and mornings where uh, it's freezing at the valley floor, warm air rises and uh, the valley floor is at roughly 300 feet. Between 500 and 1,000 feet there is a warm pocket of air. If there's wind, that's disrupted, but if there's a wind you're probably not going to have a freeze at the valley floor. But on those cold, clear nights, that that inversion zone uh, gives you a warm pocket and you don't have a freeze. We have never had a freeze between April 1st and October 31st. On our vineyard. Wow. Because we are in the inversion zone. You go a few mi- uh, another mile or so into the Coast Range, and you will be out of that inversion zone because of the valleys, uh, etc. Uh, in fact, there have been vineyards planted further west of us into the south that uh, I actually act- uh, worked as a uh, as a consultant uh, on a few occasions for people, and I've recommended that they perfect site, but don't buy this because it's going to be out of the inversion zone. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but that piece of property was purchased and it turns out they eventually abandoned it because mm. they had lost too many crops to, to frost. Uh, <clears throat> so what the being in the inversion zone does is it gives you a longer growing season, and that growing season between April 1st and October 31st.
1: So. so- you've been a consultant before if if someone came to you today and said that they wanted to start a vineyard in oregon what would your advice be
2: well that they find a south or southeast (laughs) slope uh, with appropriate soil uh grapes only need 16 inches of rain per year yeah dry farming is a lot easier than irrigating uh and i uh, i think it gives you a better idea what your terroir is also if you are dry farming although there's nothing I I can understand why people irrigate also but uh, so you need a soil uh, for example Jory soil has four inches of moisture holding capacity per foot so all you need is four feet of soil well Jory is a 10 to 50 foot soil and so you know that's why our average rainfall here is 44 inches a year we never have to worry about water we've never well we irrigate our vineyard um, we, we've irrigated the very first year that we plant a vine uh, we give each vine about uh, one gallon twice throughout the growing season the first year and then they're on their own and every vine's done fine uh, so basically I'd say <clears throat> to anybody wanting to start out research it very carefully Oregon uh, State University has put out a very wonderful book on uh, grape growing mm-hmm. uh, and I think they should read that, that would be my advice really But uh, the most important thing is finding the right site, but that reminds me of a funny story. I, I asked Bill Blosser when we first met, I said, Bill, what advice would you give me for planting a vineyard? And he said, keep your rows straight. <laughs> <laughs> and that was some of the best advice I ever got because I was really careful with my planting lines and we did keep the rows straight. And uh, it really pays off because I've spent, I do all the machine work in the vineyard. I, except at harvest, I let one of my guys drive the second tractor to pull the bins out to the truck that we're uh, sending up to uh, the wineries that we're selling at too. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I've spent, uh, you know, let's see, I know exactly how many hours I spent because I know the hours on the tractor. I've spent about 10,000 hours on, on tractors over the last 40 years.
1: It's a good thing those rows were straight.
0: <laughs> <Very good. laughs> have taken out a few more poles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All
1: right, Christina, I have to ask you the same question. If someone came to you and asked about starting a winery or vineyard, what would you tell them?
0: I'd tell them to do a lot of homework, it, especially if you don't have a farming background, that it's very labor-intensive. Um, it's good to have a nice source of funding to help you because it takes several years before you'll... Get much return on your
1: investment. Um, What about from a family standpoint?
0: I think it's a great place to raise a family. Our kids loved growing up here. Our grandkids love to come here, and they like to bring their friends out. So I think from that standpoint, it's very nice. Anything else?
1: Okay, that's all the questions I have. Is there, <laughs> is there anything that I have forgotten to ask that I should have, or anything you'd like to, anything else you'd like to add?
0: I think you asked a lot. <laughs> I don't know, do you have anything else you want to add? Um, no, but we want to thank you for
2: the opportunity to tell our story.
0: And I'm impressed that you're doing this for the whole wine industry. I think it will be important.
2: Thank you. Down the road to thank have these archives. I think I would also just say that uh, the vineyard and wine industry in Oregon is uh, just a very fun industry and would welcome
1: all newcomers. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Okay. With that, we'll stop the formal part of the interview. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success.